brought to you by Penguin. Look, I got lots of things wrong as Labour leader. I'd be the first person to say that. But it's interesting, some of the things I advocated, at the time they were seen as outlandish. I remember David Cameron saying, you're living in a Marxist universe if you want to freeze energy prices, cap energy prices. And then Theresa May adopted it. You mean that well-known Marxist revolutionary Theresa May? Exactly, the well-known Marxist (laughs) Theresa May. Hello and welcome to the multi-award winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. This is the space where we invite writers to take us through their processes, the whys and hows behind the works that they present to us. Each episode, our guest brings with them a selection of objects that have influenced them and their writing. And then we delve a little deeper into those inspirations and how they have materialised on the page. Now, this week, I'm joined by a political heavyweight turned influential podcaster turned big thinker. Leader of the Labour Party for five years, my guest today chose not to shy away from politics after losing a general election to the Conservatives in 2015. Instead, he remains an active politician in his constituency of Doncaster North. He has returned to the front bench as Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy as of last year, and he has distilled ideas from his successful podcast, very successful podcast, in fact, Reasons to be Cheerful, presented with Jeff Lloyd, into a new book, which is out now, called Go Big, which ambitiously sets out how to fix our world and bristles with an optimism often missing from modern politics. I'm, of course, talking about none other than Ed Miliband. Ed, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Well, Nihal, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, by nature, are you a glass half full type of person? Ah, how interesting. I think about the world I am, yes, actually. Uh, I think my wife would say I have a tendency to introspection about myself, but but about the world, I'm, I'm definitely a glass half full person. I, I sort of, and in a way, we'll come on to this, but, you know, doing the book, getting stories from around the world about all the amazing things that are going on, the history of, you know, positive solutions out there to so many of the problems that we're wrestling with has made me sort of more optimistic in a way. Um, You have to have a certain degree of glass half fullness, I guess, to go through a general election, lose and then carry on. So, (laughs) Yeah, but that's interesting. You make a distinction that perhaps externally you're glass half full, but potentially internally glass half empty. Yeah, my wife would say that I'm still spending my t- too much of my time being sort of anxious and glass glass half empty-ish, uh, probably. But I sort of think in the sweep of history, Obama used to quote this line, which wasn't from him, but, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. And I sort of think that's basically sort of right. Uh, in terms of myself, I mean... I, I suppose I would say I don't know whether how this relates to the half fullness, half emptiness, but I'm I guess I have a degree of resilience. You know, you lose a general election, it's pretty. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> uh, in case you're wondering, uh, I think I say in the book that you go from sort of thinking about your next convers, you know, that you're going to be talking to Barack Obama the next morning to being grateful for a call about your PPI. You know, it's sort of. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I have a degree of of, of resilience. Because, of course, this book 
is a glass full book, isn't it? Because it presents us with the possibility of positive change in every page. I mean, that's what it's aspiring to do. And that's nice of you to say. And and the evolution of this, you mentioned the podcast at the beginning, the, the evolution of this is that I... I lost the general election in 2015. Uh, I, I don't know whether I've mentioned that already. Uh, um, uh, I feel like your therapist, uh, by the way. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, welcome. I appoint you. I appoint you my therapist. Um, so I lost general election in 2015. And, and I thought to myself, I want to carry on being an MP because I think it's, well, partly a, a due to my constituents in Doncaster, but also I thought it's a way of, I, don't, I may not be the leader of the Labour Party anymore, but I can talk about ideas. And I you know, people talk about think tanks or research institutes, and I never quite, hadn't quite, couldn't quite work out what was the way of doing it. And then Jeff Lloyd came to see me and said, "Look, there's this podcast thing start going on. You know, lots of people are interested in podcasts. Would you do one with me about ideas? And I'll be the everyman, and you can be the the nerd." And doing the podcast, and this is where the book evolved from. Suddenly, you realise that, you know, whether it's the lack of affordable housing that we have or parents not having enough time when their babies are born or you know the environment or inequality there are lots of other countries doing really interesting things and lots of other solutions out there and actually even if we look and also if we look into our own history there are some good ideas out there so the podcast was a bit of a revelation even for me who's a bit of a nerd about if you lift your sights and if you think you know, think of any problem and there's a solution out there. And and that's the sort of genesis of the podcast is what we try and do. It's called Reasons to be Cheerful, trying to be positive and upbeat. And, and you know, the book, in a way, tries to do the same. Is there any room for idealism when trying to change the world? Or is it largely about pragmatism and realism? What a good question. I'm in the idealism camp. I think in general, politics isn't a hospitable enough place to big ideas. It tends to squeeze them out. I, I say in the book that there's this famous political expression, politics is the art of the possible. And in thinking about the book, I, I came to the view that that's obviously right in a way, you've got to compromise and so on. But the really big things that change things are, are, are those which make the impossible possible. So things that at one point looked like they could never, ever happen and actually do happen. What do I mean by that? You know, in 1909, there was a minority report on the poor law, which re which recommended a national health service. It looked impossible. Today, we've got a national health service and it's the probably the proudest institution of the country. LGBT rights, when I was growing up, you know, equal marriage would have seemed absolutely outlandish. And now it's a law of the land brought in by a conservative government. Minimum wage was a sort of long-standing demand of the Labour Party, took, took ages to come in. Uh, we now have one. It's accepted across parties. So I'm definitely in the idealist camp. And, and, and I suppose I try and explore in the book, how do these impossible ideas come about? And I guess I come to the conclusion there are two ways in which you can advocate for them. One, keeping the impossible idea alive. But sometimes it's about the small incremental steps which can take you to a bigger idea. So equal marriage didn't come about, you know, straight away, but, you know, equal rights for gay and lesbian people became the law of the land and then gradually change happened and it ended with, equal, you know, and the kind of step in the line was equal marriage. So, so I think there's different ways in which that change can happen. But I think it's those big changes which are 
which are the, the most important things to fight for. Do you find then, and you kind of intimated this, that idealism tends to be the diluted or potentially destroyed in those kind of hallowed corridors of power that you spend some of your time in the House of Commons? Definitely. Definitely. And you know, advocating for something seemingly outlandish or seemingly outside the mainstream is 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 definitely hard you know it's much easier to advocate for the status quo um funnily enough the former cabinet minister jack straw once said to me i think when i was in government there's always a or maybe when i was labor leader there's always a thousand good reasons not to do something in politics look i got lots of things wrong as labor leader i'd be the first person to say that but it's interesting, some of the things I advocated, so I proposed a cap or a freeze on energy prices. At the time, and a whole number of other ideas, at the time they were seen as outlandish. I remember David Cameron saying, you're living in a Marxist universe if you want to freeze energy prices, cap energy prices. And then Theresa May adopted it. And I'm not you mean saying that, that well-known the, Marxist revolutionary Exactly, the well-known Marxist <laughs> Theresa May. So, and, you know, uh, other things I proposed on executive pay, on other things. So I, and I'm not saying that I was some far-sighted person. I just, I think it's the way things go. If you think about some of the things that Mrs. Thatcher proposed in 1979, they were outlandish, they became accepted. So, you know, Brexit wasn't the thing that I was advocating for, but when people first proposed it 20 years ago, people said, well, that's never going to happen. You know, and then it did. So I guess that shows that things can change. Do you then find yourself in a war with yourself to not feel that idealism is ebbing away from you? Are you conscious of the fact that it could happen to you? All the time, I think. <laughs> it's the hardest thing in politics. The conflict between... Idealism, and I'm sure you f people feel this, whatever party they're from, a sort of your ideals and what you think is possible, and trying to strike that balance, and knowing where the line is between compromise and principle, is such a hard thing to do. Because I mean, Tony Blair once said, I don't agree with Tony Blair on everything, but he once said, every time I did a reform, I wish I'd been bolder. And I sort of, if I think back about my time as leader, lots of people thought I was too bold. And I tend to think, in retrospect, I wasn't bold enough. I think you're completely right that that is the biggest, that is the biggest challenge of politics. But I think the other thing I'd say is that I think the public increasingly want politicians to just, you probably find this in the interviews you do, the thing that makes the public scream is politicians not really saying what they think. Yes. Even if the public disagree with you, they want to they want to know what you think. And I think back on my time as Labour leader, more more therapy here. People say, um, people said after twenty fifteen, we discovered you had a personality. You know, and uh, that suggests that I was a little bit too constrained. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder whether President Obama um, reflects on perhaps how he could have been even bolder, because I think people are going to be surprised by President Biden and how far he takes things when, of course, he was uh, caricatured as being Sleepy Joe. I think you're completely right about that, by the way. I think you're completely right. You know, people talked about him. This is why politics is so extraordinary. People talked about him a year ago as, you know, people wrote him off or a bit more than a year ago. Then they said he'd be a transitional president. And now people think he might be a transformational one. 
Mm, interesting. Look, this brings us on perfectly, actually, to your first object. And it's a specific scene from the political TV drama, The West Wing. I just love this scene. It is genuinely the most brilliant summary of what you've just been asking me about. Um, the episode is called Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. And uh, one of his staff has written a memo from before she was working for him saying that basically he just compromised all the time and didn't really, st- st- didn't really stand for what he believed in. He reads the memo, it's, it's leaked to the press, and he says to his chief of staff, yeah, you you haul me in all the time, you bring me in. And the chief of staff says, oh, rubbish, don't, don't tell me that. It's you. It's your. It's your fault. You're the one who's not who's not standing up for what you believe in. The president says, well, "What's the strategy for this?" And he says, "You know, I've got the beginnings of one. Let Bartlett be Bartlett." And actually, you know, we used to talk about this when I was Labour leader. Um, I used to play this for, <laughs> for inspiration. It may not have shown uh, when I was Labour leader. So, if you ask any of my staff about "Let Bartlett be Bartlett." They'll sort of roll their eyes and be like, yeah, yeah, that five or six minute clip. We've seen it a lot of times. It always makes me tear up, actually. I find it an incredibly moving clip. So I'll I'll tell you this story, actually, which is, uh, I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. Um, There was a strike going on. You may remember this or you may not. Uh, A trade union action. And we had a very sitting on the fence position. And I did this interview with this, um, I did a clip and I thought I was just doing a clip. So I gave one answer. And then the guy asked the question three or four times, four, five times. And I gave the same answer almost literally five times. And then they broadcast the whole clip. This was in the sort of days when social media was kind of early. And of course, it looked incredibly like I was a robot because I'd said the same thing five times. And I remember doing this meeting with some of the House of Commons researchers. And this guy saying to me, listen, this junior researcher saying to me, I don't really care about that issue so much but I just want you to take a stand on some things I think it's really important that you take a stand on some things and it was a couple of days later that the whole issue of the hacking of Millie Dowler's phone happened and Murdoch and all that and I hope I'd have taken that position whatever had happened to me in the last in the previous days but I remember really thinking at the time you got to stand for what you believe in. And I think and that's what Bartlett, let Bartlett be Bartlett. That's why it's really important. And look, in a way, it's an iron sorkin fantasy and all that, is you've got to let the chips fall where they may. And you've got to, you've got to just sort of, you've got to try and just say what you think. And, and it's really, and it, look, God knows, I think it's incredibly hard. And remember, I grew up, if you like, under New Labour. And New Labour... I, New Labour had strength, did some great things in government. I always want to sort of emphasise that. But one of the things about New Labour was the idea of control, repetition of the message, not getting distracted and all of that. Now, I'm not saying that isn't important, but in a way there was a certain type of political culture around New Labour. And, and I think and I think that culture was probably had its role in that time. But I think there is a slightly different I think people's bullshitometers are much greater than they were, if you know what I mean. And people and, and social media has changed that, I think. So the thing I did of answering the same question five times, answering the same way five times, with in the days before social media, that was what I saw Gordon Brown doing. I'm not criticizing Gordon, but you know, you want your clip on the news. You don't want some other clip on the news, so you say the same thing. But actually, in the world of social media, 
media, that makes you look like a bit of a twit. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which I did. And I remember, actually, I remember, Nihal, as I walked, as I was leaving, this is like one of those things that you could, uh, this is why the thick of it is like real life. I remember leaving the office and my staff said, and I said, oh, I'm really a bit down about this bloody clip. And my office saying, oh, it's not such a big thing. Let's go for a drink. And we went for a drink nearby to Westminster. And there's a guy jogging past. He goes, oh, I've just seen you on YouTube with that clip. And I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, I, I recently interviewed Aaron Sorkin. And one of the questions I asked him, which I'm going to ask you now, is that is it inevitable that if you seek power, that some way you will be polluted by it? I mean, polluted is quite a strong way of putting it. Well, it is it. a strong word. I mean, on purpose, it's a strong word. Yeah. Define your pollute. Define polluted. Well, that it you have to make unacceptable compromises. You yes, mean? I think that's probably the pollution that I'm talking about. That eventually you'll have to either compromise, which is you know we have to compromise in life, or indeed you will be taken to places you wouldn't have otherwise gone to because the drug that power is is just too addictive. Well, I think it's two different things. I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I'd say one, sometimes politics does involve two really bad choices. I think, to be fair to this government, during coronavirus, there were lots of times when there were two really difficult and bad choices that they had in front of them. So I think there's that. I think then, the, if you like, the more pernicious question, the sort of, does it take you to places you don't want to go. I think it's something you've got to be incredibly careful of. It is addictive though, Ed, isn't it? I mean, you you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, one day speaking to Obama, the yeah. next day speaking, you know, to be in the centre of a conversation that revolves around you is, you know, it can't help but affect your, your ego and your confidence, etc. But then not to have that or the fear of not having that may lead you to make decisions that perhaps are against your your values and your ideals. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. And it goes back to your very important question about compromise. In fact, actually, um, I end the book by talking about this. Um, my father died when I was 24 and I had, and, and I, I, there was a sort of someone who was his student who was sort of my, became my father figure. And he unfortunately died of COVID last Christmas at a relatively young age. And I remember he, he, uh, his name was Leo Panich and he, um, he came over on the day of the general election today. It turned out I lost the general election. Oh, God, when really... was that? When was that? You haven't mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember him saying to me afterwards, well, I'm obviously very disappointed for you, but I'm quite pleased because I think you would have been. He didn't say stained, but he he was sort of driving at some of the similar things to you that you were. You know, I want to believe, and I do believe that you can hold on to what you believe, but I think it would be dishonest not to say there aren't pressures, massive pressures. Your next object, Ed, is another speech, this time from Robert Kennedy. Why? This speech, which was given to the National Union of South African Students in Cape Town, in fact, June 1966. Tell me about why this speech means so much to you. I wish I could write or deliver, write speeches like this. It's such a lyrical speech and such a, it definitely appeals to idealism. You know, Robert Kennedy was struck down in his prime running for 
president in 1968. He was somebody who was making the case on poverty, for example, uh, going out there, sort of making the argument, inspiring people. And the speech is really saying to people, he talks about the four different dangers, the the, the dangers of for example, of expediency, of futility, of thinking that the world can't change. He also talks about the danger of comfort, just settling back into your routine and, and sort of, if you like, abdicating uh, from the world. And, and you know, he quotes Greek poets and Machiavelli and for goodness knows who, you know, and as you just think to yourself, you know, can you imagine us giving speeches like that today? I mean, it just feels like a you know, the the I, I wrote, used to write speeches for Gordon Brown. Um, I, in fact, my first job in politics was writing speeches for Harriet Harman and then writing speeches for Gordon Brown, then writing speeches myself. And I really cared a lot, particularly when I was Labour leader, about the art of doing my conference speech. I would spend sort of two or three months thinking about my conference speech. Um, I've got a f- friend who's a film director and he used to say to me, look, because, you know, in a way, you're, if you're a film director, you, you understand the art of the story. And he would say, look, this is your chance to to tell a story to the country about where it is and how it's going to change. And the Labour Party conference speech was a big opportunity to do that. So I suppose I'm partly choosing Kennedy for his this, this speech because of its idealism, its sort of lyricism, its uh, classical illusions. And also it's a great speech and an inspiring and an inspiring speech. And it's very famous for... A particular phrase, which is every time a man, he says, unfortunately, a man stands up for an ideal, it sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. So it's known as the ripples of hope speech. And those ripples of hope can form together to form the mightiest current, which can sweep down the walls of oppression and injustice, um, which is just a, a fantastic idea about the role that the individual can play. In terms of getting change... Do you think that sometimes governments overemphasize their ability to change things? And actually, there should be much more of a conversation between big businesses and entrepreneurs and the public. Yes, I think you are right about that. Um, a wise person once said to me in government, Governments always overestimate what they can do in the short term and underestimate what they can do in the long term. <laughs> and I think that's definitely true. You know, the number of times I remember when we were in government and it would be, this is the year of delivery. And then people would say, well, where's the delivery? But actually, in the longer term, the Labour government produced quite big change. So I think that's one thing. I think, secondly, Karl Marx said, men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. And I think the reason I quote, I cite that is that people are absolutely vital in, not politicians, in producing change. Take LGBT rights, which I talked about earlier. You know, why do we make such advances in LGBT rights in this country? Partly Labour government passed some laws and then the Conservative coalition government did. But really it was gay and lesbian people who stood up and said, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And that's tr- it's not just true of that. It's true of and and, and the book tries to excite people. I, w- I want this to be not just a, a sort of piece of policy wonkery saying here's these like policies that we can pull some levers and do these things. 
it's the people who are fighting for a $15 minimum wage in the United States. And I've got 22 million people, a $15 minimum wage, when it began with some fast food workers in New York, when the minimum wage was $7.25 an hour, saying we can't live on $7.25 an hour and we can't bring up our kids. Or, you know, the the movement to get uh, investors out of fossil fuels, which is now a $14 trillion, I think, $14 trillion movement. And it began with some college kids in the US or Preston Council in the UK, which is saying, well, look, we're going to, you know, we're going to change the way we think about buying government services and pay pe- make sure the li- people are paid the living wage. And, and you know, the social movements that we have, you know, the pupil climate strikers. So, I think it's not only that governments maybe get underestimate what they can do in the long run, but overestimate what they can do in the short run. It's also, I, I genuinely believe this. It sounds like a sort of, maybe it sounds a bit like a platitude, but I genuinely believe that people pushing for change can do extraordinary things. How do you extricate the politics of it, you know, that it doesn't get sucked into a culture war, that somehow asking for climate change, identifying it and saying we have to do something about it doesn't become a left-wing thing. It doesn't become part of the kind of, oh, that's cultural Marxism. It's really hard, this, isn't it? I'm a Labour politician, as you rightly identified at the beginning, but I want this book to try and appeal you know, across parties. You know, Some people on the right of politics won't like it. Some people will think there are some ideas in it. I've got Saeed Avasi, the former co-chair of the Conservative Party, who's kindly said something nice about the book and is on the cover. I don't um, think she's a huge fan of her own party sometimes. Other maybe that's Saeed true. Avasi. Maybe that's maybe that's true. And I served actually, I, I served on a commission on social housing with her, and we we sort of hit it off. And we particularly hit it off, but she told me that there were lots of press releases about me when she was chair of the Conservative Party. She used to refuse to issue. Uh, um, uh, she said, "Oh, they were too juvenile. I used to refuse to issue them." But um, how do you stop it being partisan? I think this is really hard because. Look, the ideas that endure start out either on the left or the right of politics, and then they become accepted. I don't think that something like climate needs to be part of the culture war, and I don't think it is in this country. I think it's really important to talk about it in the right way, win people over to the cause by by understanding where people are coming from. In other words, if if climate is simply, right, everybody's going to have to pay more and make lots of sacrifices for, you know, a few generations' time, irrespective of people's financial situation, the position they're in at the moment, people are going to think, well, hang on a minute, you know, is this a middle-class luxury? I'm worried about the end of the week. You know, you're talking about the end of the world. Uh, but, you know, I've got to get to the end of the week here. So I think understanding where people are coming from is really uh, really important in this. But I think it's an interesting example because it's not subject to the culture war in this country in the way that it is in the United States, for example. I actually think the Conservative Party deserves credit for that because Cameron, you know, adopted... Mrs Thatcher first gave a speech about it, whatever it was, 30 years ago. David Cameron talked about it. Um, I also think, by the way, I think this is one of the reasons for writing the book. I think there is a big movement. Lots of people think this country needs to change whether they're from the right or the left. I think if you go through the financial crisis, Brexit, what coronavirus has exposed about some of the injustices, the pay of our key workers, our public services, other things. And this is not a part, simply a party political point. I think it's wherever you come in the political spectrum. You think, hang on, 
We've had these three crises. Okay, there are three crises. All of them are different, but they've all happened within like the last decade. It must tell us something about the social fabric, the social contract of our country, how it needs to be renewed. You know, as I say in the book, the fact that you know we've elevated markets above what we value as a society, whether that's the world of work or it's just to do with technology or care, for example, the priority we give care. So, so. I think there is a yearning for change actually across the political spectrum. And I think the I think the question for the future is who is going to grab hold of that and and shape it. Um, let's go on to your next object, uh, Ed. And it is a film, a film set in South Africa called A World Apart. Why do you want us to know about this film and how has it affected you? I mean, I rewatched the trailer before this and it was, I was weeping already. Um, so... This film is about a South African activist called Ruth First, was an activist in her own right, was married to Joe Slovo, the Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, prominent member of the ANC. She was murdered by a letter bomb in the 1980s, sent by the South African secret police to Mozambique, where where she was living. My dad um, taught Ruth First. She was his student. uh, And I met her. And I remember she was a sort of quite extraordinary person. I I was a, I think I might just become a teenager. And um, I remember when my parents found out that she died and it was just obviously appalling. And I remember thinking, I mean, it had a profound effect on me. They just made incredible sacrifices, Ruth and Joe in different ways for what they believed in. It's both awful and incredibly inspiring. And the film is really about her detention, her 90-day detention in South Africa. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not about her death, um, but it's a film with Barbara Hershey. And, and it's just an incredibly moving film. I think the other thing to say, I'd say about it is, look, they made incredible sacrifices. And they also won in the end, though. You know, when I was growing up, nobody thought apartheid would, people thought apartheid would endure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a teenager, that whole experience just had an incredible effect on me uh, because how can you not think that politics can make a difference to people's lives? Ruth was killed because of her activism, but, you know, their struggles had were a part, were contributed to an extraordinary change uh, and the end of an appalling regime. Let's take a listen now to an extract from the audiobook edition of Go Big, where we're encouraged to thank more than just the butcher, the brewer and the baker for our dinner. But there is a deeper reason, too, that care work is undervalued across our society. Historically and traditionally, it has been done by women for free, as we saw in the last chapter. The family model in which men go out to work has always relied on women being at home to cook, clean, and look after the children. It's hard to overstate how far conventional economic thinking has overlooked unpaid work done by women. In the introduction to this section, I quoted one of the most famous passages from Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations about the role of the butcher, the brewer, and the baker in providing our dinner. But Catherine Marsal points out that Adam Smith lived with his mother for most of his life. She cooked for him while he wrote the book. Smith shouldn't just have thanked the butcher, brewer and baker for his dinner, but also his mum. 
That was a reading from Go Big by Ed Miliband. The audiobook is available to buy now and there's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And so to your final object, although with your repeated pleas in Go Big for those in power not to treat humans as commodities, Ed, it feels a little ironic to call your mum and dad objects. Why have you chosen them? <laughs> um, well, so much of my inspiration, so much of who I am and it's true of everybody comes from the conversations with my mum and dad. And um, so my dad was the idealism and my mum was the realism is the way I'd put it. Um, my dad was a Marxist uh, academic. He flirted with the Labour Party. He would, was a member at one point, then he left, he got fed up with it. But he he was encouraged to be an MP, but he didn't fancy it. Um, so he wrote books and taught. And my mum... My mum is still alive. Uh, she spent her career doing different things, but was, when I was growing up, a big campaigner for childcare. She was a sort of realist, and the, the conversations around the dinner table were sort of between the realist and the idealist. And, and they were they were both refugees from the Nazis. Um, my dad came here when he was 16 with his father uh, in 1940 from Belgium, and my mum was in hiding during Poland. She lost her father during the Second World War. And, you know, they didn't talk much about the Holocaust and the impact it had on them, but I think it had a profound effect on the atmosphere of the household, which was, we weren't a religious household, they weren't religious Jews, but they basically, I think they taught us that you've got a duty to leave the world a better place than you found it. I don't want to say that, you know, they, but, but because their experience suggested that terrible things could happen. So it's not like they always just said everything will turn out, the glass is always half full to go back to your starting point. But I think my dad used to say history is on our side. And I think they felt that good people could could sort of triumph, really. Well, that's a very it's a very positive and a it's a great way to be brought up to feel like that. Has your brother got a copy of the book? Have you sent him a signed copy of yep, it? Yep, he's definitely got one. Um signed? Signed, of course, of course. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. In fact, he's he's in the he's obviously in the acknowledgements. Is he? Is is there a difference? I mean, you mentioned this distinction between, and you know, it's not as binary as that, obviously. But realism and idealism. Is there also a distinction between your brother and you in that respect, or are you actually both idealists? I think we're both idealists. I think it's a, a yeah. I don't. I think, you know, he's now the head of a refugee charity, and he's certainly practicing idealism in many many different parts of the world. And look, in a way, you can trace both of our careers to, I suspect he would say many similar things about the parental upbringing that we, that we had. Uh, and, and look, it's double-edged this, but in many ways, what a privilege it was. Now, look, um, we're coming to the end of our conversation, Ed. Um, and we always like to ask our guests about a recent book that they have loved. So what would you recommend to the Penguin podcast listeners? What's next to your bed at the moment? Probably my book, no. Um, uh, uh, Imagine that. You uh, go to bed every night reading yeah, exactly book. Under my pillow. Um, uh, you know what I really like? It's a book, Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Such a great book. I mean, it's such... I got sent it by the publishers who said to me, listen, I think you're really going to love this book. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe. And I just absolutely... Because it's sort of what I feel, which is human beings are good people. 
most human beings are really good people. And you know what, actually, Nihal, it's being Labour leader, uh, ex-Labour leader. People often think to yourself, well, you know, you, you get a hard time from the press and so on. And But being a public figure, you probably find this too, I think I, I've got a much more positive view about people as a result of that. Because most people are nice, share their stories with you, are generous, kind, say nice things. Now, okay, if people think I'm a so-and-so, they you know may not come up to me. Uh but but I think I think the Bregman book really, which is a sort of and you know, he's got this great story which I think might be being made into a film that the Lord of the Flies didn't happen. That's you know, amazing. That's I was yeah, gonna I, pinpoint that particular chapter is outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's yeah. so 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 it is it's heartwarming in the best sense of the word, that book, I think. I agree. I agree. Uh, Before we go, don't forget to follow the Penguin podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Uh, Ed, thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really really grateful to you for, for doing it, and I've really enjoyed it myself. 